Appendix of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appendix Oscar Wilde at Chickering Hall. Mr. Oscar Wilde delivered on Monday at Chickering Hall a lecture on the English Renaissance, which might fairly be called a success. In the present days of easily manufactured notoriety, a young man who has managed to establish a doubt in the minds of the public as to whether he is a profound thinker or an utter fool might be said to be on the high road to a very substitute for fame, and this is what Mr. Wilde had previous to his lecture succeeded in doing. The difficulty with his future career is likely to be that his lecture solves the doubt, and that he will be unable to keep alive any curiosity on the subject. When we say that he solves the doubt, we mean, of course, that he is a profound thinker, not by any means, to parody a phrase of his own, a thinker of unthought thoughts, but of thoughts thought and expressed too, for that matter, a great number of times before, though not thought nor expressed so profoundly as by Mr. Wilde, nor in his own manner. To say that the aesthete is a disciple of Ruskin gives a meagre idea of the chameleon-like power of imitative reproduction which he displays. His hospitable mind has opened its doors to Ruskin, Millet, Holman Hunt, Dante Rossetti, Swinburne, Baudelaire, Gautier, William Morris, Burne-Jones, Keats, Wordsworth, Shelley, Walt Whitman, Goethe and Gilbert and Sullivan. It may seem at first that it would be difficult for even a deep young man to find a common basis for an aesthetic movement in all these, but Mr. Wilde is not only deep enough for this, but far too deep to explain what the common basis is or what he has to do with it himself. Under these circumstances, and at the risk of violating Mr. Wilde's fundamental maxim of criticism, that the function of the critic is to hold his peace at all times and in all places, we will venture to offer a suggestion or two in explanation of the somewhat mysterious phenomenon presented by Mr. Wilde's lecture tour. When Mr. Ruskin and the Pre-Raphaelites set about reforming public taste in England, they were forced to enter upon something very like a crusade, Almost every canon of art criticism that existed had to be demolished, and its opposite established in its place. Springing up in a community strongly impregnated with moral and religious ideas, it's no wonder that the teachings of the school should have taken a religious tone. Appeals to the love of beauty alone would hardly have aroused the dull British Philistine from his contented, vulgar lethargy. To touch him at all, it was necessary to stir his conscience, and the forerunners of the aesthetic movement, who, by the way, were all sincere men and loved art themselves with a semi-religious fervour, became the founders of a proselytising church, a kind of artistic rock of ages in the weltering and waste of the British Philistinism. They brought the pure milk of the word to the heathen, showed him his errors, touched his soul, awoke him to the new life, 
lifted him out of the mire of sin in which he lay wallowing and showed him the true path. The unconverted heathen mocked and raged, as the heathen always do, and set up mere false gods in the shape of bad pictures, and ridiculed the true faith in the columns of their heathen organ, Punch. They could not butcher the apostles, or give them to wild beasts to devour, but they inflicted upon them all the social persecution that the mild manners of modern times permit, by making them have a thoroughly bad time. The persecution had its natural effect in strongly stimulating the devotion and zeal of the sect, and no one who has given any attention to its writings or teachings can have failed to notice the sacerdotal tone assumed by it, a tone of which there is a faint echo in Mr. Wilde's platitudes and paradoxes, and even in his dimly religious voice. Everybody knows now how the church spread, how little by little the old Philistines were converted and newborn Philistines were baptised into the new faith. The rage of the heathen disappeared, and on every side the galleries of the old religion were cleared of the Philistine rubbish and swept and garnished to make room for what was purely true and precious in art. The success of any church in converting the heathen, of course, puts it in a different attitude towards society from that which it occupies in the days of adversity. The Philistine who, though a man of sin, has a good deal of sense, always keeps his eyes on the children of light, and is always willing to take his cue from them when he finds it necessary to do so. And when he does do this, he does it handsomely. The Philistine is after all the same flesh and blood as the rest of us, though so hopelessly sunk in the mire. After a time, he too joined the church, and, so far as fashionable society in England is concerned, it may be said to have been converted for ten years. The connection between the decorative or aesthetic movement, which Mr. Wilde, with delightful impudence, is undertaking to further in this country, and the old pre-Raphaelite crusade, is easy enough to trace. It too has been completely successful and is in full possession of the walls, floors, ceilings and furniture of the best society in England, and to a great and increasing extent of the United States. Mr. Wilde, therefore, instead of being, as he represents himself, a missionary preaching art to the heathen in the wilderness at the sacrifice of fortune, fame, and everything that the Philistine holds most dear, stands to art more in the relation of the fashionable preacher of the swell congregation to religion. To compare profane things to sacred, Mr. Wilde is the Charles Honeyman of the religion of which Ruskin was the Saint Paul. When Ruskin preached, society was Philistine, but it now forms the congregation. We all know the spirit in which we listen to the fashionable preacher, how we like to hear him denounce sin and expose the vanity and frivolity of worldly pursuits, the money-loving and commercial spirit of the age, and how true we feel it to be that collections ought to be taken up for the conversion of others. There is the same vagueness too about the articles of Mr. Wilde's faith that there is about those of the Reverend Charles. 
the aesthetic principles which he announced on Monday at Chickering Hall were in a strange jumble, the chief merit of which lay in the serene superiority of the lecturer to the confusion which he produced in the mind of his audience, and which we notice has led one reporter of it to imagine that he said that English aestheticism sprang from the union of Hellenism with the Romantic spirit, quote, as from the marriage of Faust and Helen of Troy sprang the beautiful Lady Euphemia, unquote. Mr. Wilde, again, represented himself as being determined to carry on the warfare of art against Philistinism to the bitter end, but really he brings peace rather than a sword. Art, when first introduced among the Philistines, did lead to an internecine struggle. It introduced discord into every family, set father against son and mother against daughter. It inspired passions in the simple-minded barbarous Anglo-Saxon which nothing else but religion and the study of language had ever produced. But it is easy to see from the reception we have given to Mr. Wilde that he is not an iconoclast or in any danger of suffering the fate of a martyr. He is, as we have said, spreading the true faith in art, much as a fashionable preacher spreads the true faith in the gospel. He and his congregation are really all of one mind, but he has the gift of expression, the sweet eloquence which the successful preacher must always have, and he thoroughly appreciates the value of extravagance in attracting attention. He is glad to have even his congregation laugh at him, if they will only join in his prayer to the steel of Toledo and the silk of Genoa, or acknowledge the supreme importance of the gaudy leonine beauty of the sunflower and the precious loveliness of the lily. It makes little difference whether Maudel is the caricature of Mr. Wilde or Mr. Wilde a realisation of Maudel. It is the doubt which gives reality to both. There is nothing that shows Mr. Wilde in his true light so completely as his great appreciation of Bunthorne. Bunthorne is an imposter, an aesthetic sham, and his existence every night tends to make the whole aesthetic movement ridiculous. Now, it is very true that all new moments in art or poetry have had their parodists and their satirists, but it never occurred to any reformer before Mr. Wilde that it would be a good thing to encourage parody and satire as a means of keeping the ball going. The same manager runs the lecture tour of the Eastheat and the operatic company which heaps ridicule upon him. You hear the true gospel at Chickering Hall and join the mocking laughter of the heathen at the absurdity of it at the Standard Theatre. We must say that, to our mind, Mr Gilbert has the best of the joke. Real reformers have usually hated, as only just men can hate, those who sneer at reform. It was left to Mr Wilde to discover the commercial value of ridicule in the good cause. Mr Wilde is a poet, a preacher, and a man of the world, as a man of the world, he knows that the true way to attract attention is to shock people's sense of decency, and the true way for a preacher to become fashionable is to make the word pleasant and soothing to fashionable people. 
and that a very good substitute for fame is the notoriety attracted by silliness. Mr Wilde is an essentially foreign product, and can hardly succeed in this country. What he has to say is not new, and his extravagance is not extravagant enough to amuse the average American audience. His knee-breeches and long hair are good as far as they go, but Bunthorne has really spoiled the public for Wilde. 12th January 1882, The Nation Oscar Wilde's lecture in English provinces on The House Beautiful. He used to commence his lecture on The House Beautiful by saying that he would refrain from giving a definition of the abstract principle of beauty, that metaphysicians, rhetoricians and poets had all tried to do so in vain. There was a time, he continued, when every house was beautiful. There was once a spirit which touched everything into loveliness. The right basis of every artistic movement was to value and honour handicraft. Delicacy of hand, refinement of imagination, the eye to see beauty and the power to transmit that beauty to others, unless all this were honoured, art might become the luxury of a few people or it might be the fashion of a few seasons. But it would be nothing more. He referred to what he had seen in the Chinese quarter of San Francisco, where all the little vessels and cups of the Chinese were articles of the greatest taste, while he, in his hotel, had had his tea given him in a Delph cup of the size of half a brick. All rules for decoration must be general. Aestheticism is not a style, but a principle. All rules applicable to decoration must be broad, workaday, and not abstruse. Mr. William Morris's first rule was not to have anything in the house but what one knows to be useful and what one thinks to be beautiful. What strange ornaments, said Oscar Wilde, are to be seen in the houses of very charming people. Wax flowers, here people used to laugh, Horrible things perpetrated in Berlin wool, laughter, and the endless array of antimacassars, which seems to reduce life to the level of an eternal washing day. This was always applauded and became a household phrase. The lecturer then quoted Mr. Morris's second principle, not to have anything but what is felt to have been a joy to someone to make it, and a joy to others to use it. This tablecloth, said Oscar Wilde, pointing to the one on the table in front of him, which was usually a, a showy one of indescribable pattern, must have been made by someone who worked under permanent depression of spirits. Laughter. The third principle was not to have in one house any imitation of one texture in another. Wood painted like stone, paper appearing like marble, and other things which Ruskin condemned so forcibly. For a man, said Ruskin, to have on the walls of his house a marble paper was extremely immoral. He, Oscar Wilde, 
would leave out of his dictionary all fine ethical words about art. To him, the morality of art was its beauty, the immorality its ugliness. And that could be said without going into graver moral questions. We ought not, then, to think, but to be absolutely certain that there is nothing in our house which is not useful and that is not beautiful. He was often asked, what is the true artistic colour? He was unable to reply. All colours were artistic. He smiled when he read in the newspapers that such and such a colour would be a fashionable one for the season. As in music, so in colour. One note was not more beautiful than another. The combination of notes was music, the combination of colours was beauty. How we should smile if it were to be announced that B-flat would for some months be the fashionable note. What a dreary lookout it would be. But quite as depressing was it to be told that one particular colour would be fashionable for the season. It was essential to true decoration that there should be a knowledge of background, of neutrals, and of tertiary colours, so as to produce the impression without glare. Gold was a neutral, its object to give tone, but it had been made into a primary colour. It was always safe to treat walls as background and keep bright colours for detail. Porcelain, silk, and such-like textures were best for bright colours. Colour not merely makes things beautiful, but is often the substitute for architectural features, which in themselves are not possible to us. The fault of most rooms, Mr Wilde said, was in their being too high. He then had a good-humoured tilt at the scientific doctors who advocate high rooms. Ventilation was what was wanted. You need not light your rooms with five glaring lights of a chandelier hanging from a plaster vegetable in the centre of the ceiling. There was no reason why rooms should not be lighted with candles or oil lamps. The lecturer then went on to describe how a room too high or too low should be treated in its decoration. The stencilings of Japan, designed by the first Japanese artists, were then described. Large windows and windows coming too low were condemned. Plate glass gives glare, but not light. Glare is to light what noise is to music. When ugly windows are obtained, then the upholsterer is sent for to see what he can do. The upholsterer has no scruples. He brings a pole as heavy as a ship's mast and massive rings thereon to support a curtain, not to fall into folds and reach only to the floor, but to trail and to be looped with woollen bands and all other kinds of wickedness the upholsterer designs. Laughter. The beauty of small panes and coloured glass was then pointed out. Coloured glass made light beautiful. Dreary, white, shining marble chimney pieces were next satirised, and were described as things which it would be wicked to sell, and still more wicked to give away. The problem was what to do with them. Mirrors came in for unqualified condemnation, a room was supposed to have four walls. All sorts of fantastic shapes were given by a mirror reaching from the chimney piece to the ceiling, and every straight line was deflected. 
Mirrors were one of the unpunished crimes of the 19th century. He did not want to say anything more severe than that. When the present century came in, there was a feeling that all useful things should be made as ugly as possible. Useful things ugly, and then the rooms filled with a number of delicate little luxuries. The common things of life ought to be made so beautiful that nothing shall hereafter be called common. The qualities of good furniture were that it should be well made, be comfortable, and be made by people of refinement for people of refinement. There was something in art besides honesty. Honesty was not a principle but a condition of art. Furniture well made and of good materials grew more beautiful the longer you had it. The most comfortable chairs were not the softest. In conclusion, the lecturer, in an eloquent peroration, showed how all possibility of having in England beautiful things depended upon the honour and dignity given to handicraft. It was here that the lecturer became most effective and impressive, and most earnestly did he plead that every handicraft might have a place in the education of every child. We in England have made a great mistake, he continued. The attention of children has been fixed to books when it ought not to have been. Who cannot remember when a child, looking at a blacksmith at work or spending an hour in a carpenter's shop, every child likes to see something made and likes to make something. A school should be the most beautiful place in every town and village, so beautiful that the punishment for undutiful children should be that they should be debarred from going to school the following day. In all schools there should be a constant succession of new and delightful things, so that children could not weary or become indifferent to anything that was beautiful. He considered that it would be a very good thing if some of the bits of decorative art which were stored up at South Kensington and similar museums were lent to the schools throughout the country for the edification and delight of the children. There was no place so absolutely depressing as a museum. There was a better use of art than looking at it on a rainy day. Give a child something to make and he would be happy, and a perfectly happy child would be a perfectly good child. Children might be taught to do something in wood, something in leather, in pottery, in furniture, in decorative art, and in metalworking. The artistic power of every child was great. The problem of the age was the noisy boy who would not go to school nor learn his lessons, but spent his time in throwing stones at windows. What was the matter with him? He had simply discovered that he had hands, and that they were given him for something. Many people do nothing with their hands but cover them with kid gloves. The human hand has marvellous powers. Every child loved beautiful things. The taste of a child was often perfectly faultless. A child knew that what was beautiful must be good. If such children were taught the nobility of all handicraft, that lesson would be quite as important as teaching them the population of Madagascar or the names of the Saxon kings, or in the incidents in the private lives of people who never lived. Open the child's eyes to see the beauty of land and sea, of the flight of birds, of the budding of a flower, and the falling of a leaf, 
and they will feel it a joy and desire to communicate that joy to others, and almost every noble lesson of life will have been learned. They will learn to love all that is beautiful and to hate all that is ugly. Moral tales do not accomplish much good. The boy who throws a stone does not always fall into the well, as the tale states. This is soon discovered, and then comes the revolt of life against literature. Every child cannot be made into an artist. The lecturer closed his remarks by quoting the words of one who loved beauty more than anything else, John Keats, who, replying to someone who had asked him to venerate some principle or other, said, I venerate only the supreme being, the memory of great men, and the principle of beauty. Oscar Wilde's lecture in Dublin on the value of art in modern life. Within the last few years in that country and elsewhere, there had been a strong development of artistic feeling and artistic beauty in the houses, not alone of the wealthy, but of all classes. A better perception of form and colours and a greater sense of harmony ran through every room. Certain old ornaments had disappeared. The wax peach no longer ripened in the glass shade. Cumbrous and useless furniture had been more and more laid aside. He would endeavour to show the scientific basis of the movement. Modern science taught that every organism, whether plant or animal, sought its proper environment. There was no reason why mankind should not seek for theirs. Plato, in his Republic, taught that children should be brought up in the midst of fair sights and sounds, so that the soul might be brought naturally into harmony with the eternal world. Formerly abstract definitions of the beautiful were aimed at, but the artistic temperament was better developed by beautiful surroundings, by giving a perception of every particular beauty. He was not sure that the real meaning of art was understood. Most people imagined that it was in some way synonymous with ornamentation, but ornamentation was merely a branch of art, Art was primarily a question of construction, next of adaptability to a purpose, and lastly of proportion. Within the last few years, ornamentation had become an enemy of art. Some of the most beautiful things were entirely without ornament. In opposition to this, they saw vases and articles of pottery beautiful in form, but covered with meaningless landscapes and sprawling flowers. The manufacturers said the public would not buy the things unless they were covered with ornament. Another thing which hindered artistic development was the wrong use of materials. They saw looking-glasses framed in plush and painted with flowers. Plush was chiefly good for the delicate folds that it afforded, and the merit of a looking-glass was that it reflected its object, but these effects were lost in such frames, Nature was beautiful in its exquisite details and in the pageantry of its changing moods. Nature was an ideal to itself, but, as regarded art, it was not an ideal at all. Art was not a mere imitation of natural objects. Decorative art, like music, depended absolutely on certain laws. On laws of alternation, symmetry and series, corresponding more or less to melody in music, 
on laws of repetition and mass corresponding to harmony. Nature was the rough material from which art selected. Look at the examples of old Celtic art and at Persian, Hindu and other Oriental arts in their general characteristics, except Japanese. In old Celtic art, there was no imitation of a single object in nature. The prohibition in the Quran of the imitation of natural objects led to an exceedingly fine school of Mohammedan decorative art. These all dealt in exquisite lines, beautiful proportions, and lovely masses of colour. Bad ornamentation had arisen from the separation of the functions of the artist, the decorator, and the workman. Ornament should never for a moment disturb outline and proportion, nor should it add to the apparent weight of anything. With regard to materials, when wood was used, curves should be avoided. The curved furniture of the Louis XIV period was invariably gilt, so as to look like metal. In modern English furniture, they saw the mahogany writhing into all sorts of shapes, giving a sense of insecurity and heaviness. But should not art be national? He felt obliged to say no. National art was as impossible as national mathematics. Mathematics was the science of truth, and art was the science of the beautiful. Both were founded on natural laws of universal application. But the national idea might be imparted in details. The Greeks made a certain use of the honeysuckle in the ornamentation of their buildings, but now, provided the principle of decoration were adhered to, any other flower would do as well. Therefore, they should not furnish their houses as if they wished to please a professor of history. If he were asked for a definition of what a really beautiful thing was, he was not sure that his answer would not be such an object as would harmonise with all other beautiful objects, no matter of what century or nation. They would agree because they expressed the same laws. Between examples of ancient Irish art and examples from the Alhambra, or from Oriental mosques of the Byzantine period, there would, therefore, be no discord. They could select from all these, and the best furnished house would be the one which could not be absolutely localised as regarded forms of art. Everything should be in proportion as to colour and form, and a mere spirit of archaeology should not prevail. Why was this movement called aesthetic? There was a deeper sense in that word than the merely beautiful. In past ages, decorative art was symbolic and expressive of ideas. Afterwards, it became simply impressive, and consequently aesthetic. In the hands of the Greeks, it became after a time simply impressive, and in the period of the Renaissance, Italian decorative art took the same direction. Symbolism had a tendency to putrefaction and to the stoppage of growth. On the other hand, when the aesthetic impulse came into play, there was a constant growth and admission of new light. When art was healthy, it was constantly changing in its details. To us, in the 19th century, the aesthetic side of art had more application than the symbolic. Anciently, symbolism was a means of conveying ideas in novels, religion and philosophy. But, since printing, the enormous increase of books 
had almost put an end to that function, and ornamentation now mainly appealed to the eye, and thereby a greater amount of beauty was attained. The beauty of a rose was not enhanced by a long botanical name. Decoration was to be distinguished from imaginative art. Decorative art emphasised its material and made it more beautiful than before. Imaginative art annihilated its material. They did not regard the canvas of a picture or the stone of a piece of sculpture. Again, they could place a piece of decorative art where they liked, but they could not do so with a picture. They had to hang a picture where they could see it under certain conditions of light and shade. Decorative art depended largely on traditions, whereas the art of the picture or the statue was purely individual. Decorative art was purely impressive, like music. They did not ask what a piece of music meant, but how it affected them. But imaginative art expressed not merely the facts of nature, but the wonderful power of the hand and eye of the artist. What chiefly constituted the artist was his power of vision. He thought that in art schools here there was too much use of hard outline. The Japanese artists did better by teaching their students to use a soft brush and also by making them paint from the shoulder without any rest for the wrist. The Greeks discovered what was beautiful, but the Dutch school of artists were the first to discover that ugly objects might be made beautiful. There was no object in life so hideous that it might not become beautiful under certain conditions of light and shade. What the artist should do is to watch for the moment when indifferent objects became thus transformed. Modern painters were too much in the habit of taking subjects from history and literature and of resorting to symbolism. There was also too great a tendency to special subjects. At a London exhibition, a young artist gained great éclat by a picture in which he introduced in the foreground three silver birch trees. For a while afterwards, the public would have nothing but silver birch trees. The artist wisely remonstrated against this and painted a picture with trees of a different kind, which he exhibited and was informed by a dealer that a gentleman was ready to pay him his own price for it if only he would put three silver birches in the foreground. Here the first laugh was taken. The practice of decorative art ennobled labour and contained within itself an enormous store of economic wealth, owing to the extent to which the value of the material was enhanced by the work of the artist. It was always possible for a nation, by artistic power, to give to the commonest material vastly increased value. There was no reason why we in Ireland should not do this. There was, in all the Celtic races, this power of decoration. Whether they viewed the remains of ancient art in the Royal Irish Academy, or in the museums of Northern Europe, they would be struck by the far greater sense of beauty evinced in the early Celtic work than in the old English art, which was deficient in delicacy and sense of proportion. Applause. And there was no reason why they should not show that those perceptions of the beautiful and capacities of delicate handling as to hue and colour were not dead. Oscar Wilde's Lecture in Dublin on Dress it was strange that, 
whereas so much attention had been paid to the decoration of our homes, very little care had been bestowed on the national dress of our men and women. No matter how beautiful a house might be, it should be only a background for the men and women who dwell in it. The beauty of the house was abnormal so long as the art of dress was neglected. When he called it an art, he did not exaggerate its importance. To be dressed well requires that one should be a master of colour and form. The beauty of a dress consists in it giving expression to the grace and freedom of the body. It should suit and yield to its every motion, and not be a mere prison in which the body is confined. Before there is any reform in our national costumes, the natural motions and functions of the body must be better and more widely understood. A great aid to the general acquiring of that necessary knowledge would be the teaching of drawing. A desire to draw is natural. No boy or girl fails to cover its lesson book with pictures of its parents and friends or of the house over the way. Writing, on the contrary, is an acquired art, and there is no reason why children should not be taught drawing as they are taught writing. They might commence by drawing plain figures, squares or cubes, proceeding afterwards to the study of the human figure, in the first place from the casts of the ancient Greek statues. They would then learn that the waist, for instance, is the most delicate and graceful curve in the entire body, and that it is not necessarily beautiful if it happens to be small. Nothing is beautiful because it is simply small or large, and the waist is beautiful only when it is in perfect proportion with the other parts of the human figure. Similarly, the foot is beautiful when it gives the idea of being the firm basis on which the body rests, and the hand is not beautiful in proportion to its smallness, but when its curves and those of the wrist are graceful and unbroken. The poets, who are generally blamed for everything, here the first laugh was usually heard, are probably responsible for the idea that a small waist is necessarily beautiful. Chaucer and Dunbar are amongst the guilty. One talks of a lady whose waist was as small as a willow wand. In the same way, it is almost impossible to take up a novel in which the lady has not extremely small hands and feet. The child who has learned to draw will know that the effect of horizontal lines upon the figure is to reduce its apparent height, whilst that of vertical lines is to increase the height. The same principle, as is well known, holds in the case of a house. If a ceiling be too high, a fault very common in our modern homes, it is easy to reduce its seeming height by running any broadband, such as a dado, horizontally round the room. If, on the contrary, the ceiling be too low, as occasionally occurs in very old houses, proportion may be given by making the leading lines vertical. In dress, if a lady be too tall, a broad belt or sash lessens her apparent height while if she happens to be small, the lines of her dress should be as much as possible vertical. A person looking at the fashion plates of the period of the First French Empire will be struck by the apparent height of the beautiful ladies of the time. The cause is that the skirts were lengthened by shortening the waist. As regards the question of colour, he should remind them that in decorating a room, unless it was wanted to be a museum, 
they should have some scheme of colour. The same holds true of dress. He thought that at most three colours, unless very exquisitely harmonised, were as many as could be safely employed, for it should be understood that any contrasting colour concentrated attention on a mere detail. Vivid colours in ribbons or feathers in the headdress are dangerous also, because they interfere with the attention and attract undue observation. Large checks should not be worn, as they render any irregularity of the figure at once apparent. Recently, he had gone into a shop in London to purchase some stamped velvet or plush. After a lengthened search, he was obliged to ask the shopman to show him something that would not require a man some ten or twelve feet high to be in proportion. The figures on all that the shopman had shown were large enough for the paper of a considerable building. Anything else, the shopman said, was unfashionable. When he mentioned the word fashion, he named the greatest enemy of art in this as in all other centuries. It is a giant that puts men in chains. Art seeks to give expression to individuality. Fashion insists upon every man doing as every other man. If there were anything beautiful or excellent in fashions, they would not have to be changed every six months. The Egyptians had preserved their national dress for nearly 2,000 years. The Greeks maintained theirs for over 900. With us, a young lady spends her pocket money buying a bonnet, which she wears for a few weeks to the admiration and rage of her neighbourhood. And then comes her dearest friend, who mentions, quite casually, that nobody wears a bonnet of that shape or colour now. Laughter. More money is spent on bonnets alone than would suffice, if their figures were made public, to drive the husbands of the kingdom to despair. Applause and laughter. It is not that they are beautiful. Time was when great merchants and nobles dressed their wives in brocades and cloth of gold. More money in proportion is expended now because fashion changes so often. The economy would indeed be great if dress could be rendered permanent. In England, as in every other country, the national costume was permanent until the end of the 16th century. Catherine de' Medici, who had been accused of nearly every possible crime, was guilty of the introduction of the corset and the farthingale. The former was an iron band, very broad, and arranged so as to be fastened with links and hooks at the back and under the shoulders. In it, the body was iron-bound, like an American trunk. The farthingale was a cage, sometimes of osseur, at times strengthened with iron ribs, that depended from the waist and kept the dress extended to a monstrous degree. A lady thus attired would occupy all to herself as much room as would suffice for a moderate political meeting. Laughter. The same fashion may be caricatured in Hogarth's works, and in our time it has been known as the crinoline. It is now disused, and upon that at least we might congratulate ourselves. But what was the meaning of that wicked thing known as the dress improver? Applause and laughter. Of course, none of those present were capable of wearing it, but for the benefit of others, he would point out that its effect is to cut across the curve of the body just as it becomes beautiful. 
An ideal dress was that of the Athenian woman in the days of Athenian glory, when she was preeminent in her arts and in her philosophy. They borrowed from the Orient, from which all things have come, a soft variety of woollen cloth similar to cashmere. The Assyrians, with the Oriental fondness for bright colours, dyed their dress in vivid shades. The Greeks, with more artistic feeling, discarded the colours and the horizontal lines of the Assyrian girdle, which they diminished to two small cords that served to relieve the vertical lines of the robes by retaining oblique folds in position. The lecturer described the ancient Greek costume in detail. Of course, he added, in our colder climate it would be unsuitable, but two lessons may be learned from the facts known of it. The first is that, as a dress material, woollen cloth is superior to any other. It is a mistake to suppose that woollen textures are of necessity clumsy and coarse. The woollen stuffs of cashmere were finer than the finest silk. The other point, observable in the costume he had described, is that it was undivided and unseamed. The beauty of the dress was entirely dependent upon the manner in which it was worn. The use of wool as the basis of materials for dress was greatly recommended by eminent physicians. It was cool in summer and warm in winter, whilst perfectly flexible and light. Its employment in lawn tennis, rowing and cricketing clothes might be instanced as an example. A cloak with a hood, not intended merely for an ornament, was a very ancient and most admirable garment. It was decidedly Irish in very remote times, as their sculptures in Kilconnell Abbey proved. The hood should be made to protect the head from rain, that was its use. A headdress, as at present worn, is rarely of any advantage to the wearer. It generally assumes the form of a stuffed bird perching upon a small piece of tool. Laughter. Recently he saw in one of the French journals a drawing of a bonnet with the note underneath, With this style the mouth is worn slightly open. Laughter. That was surely the ne plus ultra of folly. Applause. Referring to the subject of male attire, the lecturer declared that the tall top hat was as wicked and monstrous as the worst of the feminine articles of apparel. It was supposed to give very great respectability on weekdays and irreproachable orthodoxy on Sundays. Laughter. High-heeled boots were next vigorously condemned, and Wilde concluded his lecture by impressing on his hearers that beauty in dress consisted in the perfect adaptability of the garments to the needs of the wearer. End of Appendix End of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard.